Welcome to Have You Heard? An IDF Podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. Today, we will be addressing payer challenges, as well as discussing the ability to ensure access to genetic testing. This session was originally presented during IDF's Rare of the Rare Summit in October. All right, let's get started. Hello. I'm Lynn Albizo, Vice President of Public Policy for the Immune Deficiency Foundation, and would like to welcome you to the session, Swimming Upstream, Addressing Payer Challenges and Ensuring Access to Genetic Testing. Our presenters today are Dr. Manish Butte and Abraham Yunus. Dr. Butte is the E. Richard Stame Endowed Chair and Professor of the Department of Pediatrics at UCLA and Division Chief of Immunology, Allergy, and Rheumatology. He also has a joint appointment in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Molecular Genetics. Abraham Yunus is IDF's new Director of Payer Relations and Policy with extensive experience working on payer issues with specialty pharmacies and payers, including physicians with CVS Specialty, Optum Health, and United Health Group. At this time, please join me in welcoming our presenters, Dr. Manish Butte and Abraham Yunus. Dr. Butte, we can get started. Great. Okay. Thank you for inviting me. And um, I look forward to starting a conversation about payers and genetic testing, because it's something that is on my mind virtually every day that we try to practice immunology. And um, I'm going to try to take 10 minutes here to explain uh, why we do genetic testing, what, what it's for, and uh, the struggles that we face. And I'm going to try to present uh, a couple of the major challenges that we're facing along the way and hopefully uh, get all of you riled up so we can solve this problem. Um, so when we talk about genetic testing, we're talking about uh, test sequencing parts of the genome. The genome makes up about 6 billion bases, A, C, T, G, the instruction book for how our cells work. And, um, and different parts of the genome uh, collect information called genes. And those genes tell my immune cells how to fight infections, my heart cells how to beat, my eye cells how to process light and turn it into images. So these are the instructions for how our body works. And um, the part of the genome that codes for proteins, the proteins are really the, the parts that, that the cells use to do things, uh, makes up only about 2% of the genome. We used to call the rest of this genome, the rest of the 98% junk DNA. Uh, it's not really junk. It kind of regulates which parts of the genes turn on at which times. You wouldn't want your heart cell genes turning on in your immune cells, and you want, don't want your immune cells to start acting like your heart uh, or your lungs or your liver. So the regulation of which genes turn on at which time is controlled by all of this other part. 
Um, and then another thing that you'll hear a lot about nowadays are what are called gene panels. Gene panels are exome sequencing, but done on a small number of genes. Instead of all 20,000 genes in our genome, uh, instead it's only about 400 of the genes related to inborn errors of immunity, what we nowadays uh, call primary immune deficiencies, we're now calling inborn errors of immunity. Notably, there's yet another smaller chunk of the genome that you can take, which is called genotyping. Uh, about 1 million bases of the 6 billion bases are tested this way. This is what 23andMe does, uh, or Ancestry.com. This is not at all interesting for rare diseases. It is not the least bit useful uh, for clinical work. And I don't recommend people waste $100 for this unless you're interested in entertainment or ancestry. Okay, so why do we do genetic testing? Let's get right to the punchline. First and foremost, it ends the diagnostic odyssey. A lot of our patients go years and years without knowing what's wrong with them or their kids. Why are they sick all the time? Why do they have these weird fevers? Why are they getting these strange infections or autoimmunity? The sense of relief that our patients have upon getting a genetic diagnosis to end their odyssey is palpable. And it also helps avoid unnecessary testing. A lot of our patients go years and years and years seeing hematologists and pulmonologists and GI doctors getting endoscopies and, and other procedures that may be unnecessary um, as we head towards a genetic diagnosis that we can say, these are the tests that are needed from this point onward. These are the treatments that are needed from this point onward. In fact, we know that the testing, uh, the amount of test dollars spent on testing goes way down once a diagnosis is made. Uh, it also gives you an ACE card to play against your payer. Many of the payers out there, anthems, uh, blue crosses out there, are not interested in paying for the therapies that you need for your immune deficiencies. And by playing them this card and saying, this is the genetic disease I have, this is the, the molecular basis for why my body is going wrong and why it's going against me, um, it's very hard for those companies to refute. It allows for family planning, of course, and genetic counseling, especially if new children are trying to be made through in vitro fertilization and, and uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, a chance to um, make a baby that doesn't have a, a, a genetic disease, or to understand the implications of cousins and siblings and aunts and uncles who may have a similar phenotype. And finally, and I'll talk a little bit about this now, is this idea that we can target new therapies to patients specifically because of their genetics. Uh, the best example of this is in babies with SCID. There's now a handful of SCID babies that we can treat with a special type of bone marrow transplant called gene therapy, where their own stem cells are taken out, the gene is repaired and put back in the body, and then they're cured. That kind of gene therapy is happening for new genes all the time, and it is a, not possible if you don't know what gene you're repairing. And then, of course, um, and I'll mention to you a little bit, there are specific inhibitors that we can use for autoimmunity or inflammation that our PID patients have uh, that is targeted to their molecule. Instead of just putting everyone on steroids and saying, let's see how it goes, instead we could pick a specific inhibitor. Um, so, and I'll get into some of that in a little bit. Um, so who pays for exome sequencing? This is the first and major challenge. Uh, nobody pays for exome sequencing. Nobody pays for genetic testing right now. If you wanna get exome sequencing through Medicare, forget about it. Every single insurance company out, every single uh, sequencing company out there requires what's called an advanced beneficiary notice of non-coverage or an ABN. It's basically asking you to understand that no one's gonna pay for this. Medicare is not gonna pay for this. You gotta pay for this. Medicaid, forget about it. Medicaid in California certainly does not pay for genetic testing. Uh, even the specialized branch of Medicaid for the most complex children called California Children's Services or CCS doesn't pay for genetic testing. Uh, forget about it. Um, Cigna, United Healthcare, 
they typically will say, hey, we won't cover this, but we're happy to hear your appeal. And then they'll do a denial and then you'll do another appeal. And then you go to a peer to peer and then you'll get a denial and then you'll get a denial and then it'll be over. Uh, and Anthem um, will give you an extra bit of runaround because they hire a company uh, to be the frontline round of appeals before you get to talk to the Anthem people. And then they'll lie to you about that and you'll start all over again and then you'll uh, eventually get a denial. It, there's no answer here. And this is a very depressing part of my week is that we need to do genetic testing to make diagnoses in our patients, and yet we can't get anyone to pay for it. Um, one workaround that we have figured out is that we can admit patients to the hospital, because if they're admitted to the hospital, the payer pays for the hospitalization and the diagnostic testing that goes along with it, like exome sequencing or whatever, can come along for the ride. That is not a very good solution, um, and it really uh, puts a big inconvenience on our patients. This is what the re rejection letters look like. We will not cover this service because it's experimental or investigational. They don't have any idea. They're not the least bit interested in understanding why it's experimental, why it isn't experimental, why it isn't investigational. And we spend, I spend hours per week now, every week, trying to fight and explain to payers uh, and their, um, you know, the retired geriatricians that they hire to review these insurance claims uh, to tell them about genetic testing and why we need to do this in, in, in our PID patients. Payers absolutely need to do better. They they need to do better for our rare diseases and for every set of rare diseases out there. They are universally reviled by our patients because they do not uh, focus on rare diseases. And there's a good reason for it. They're for-profit companies, and they know that most of our patients will switch insurance companies every 18 months. And so if they just drag their feet for a few months, they're less likely to have to pay for anything. It's a very frustrating part of our patients' existence and, our, and us too. What is the problem of these insurance companies? Why aren't they paying for this testing? I'm going to give you some of the questions they ask us just so you can understand the things that we have to tell them. Uh, for example, um, Blue Cross says a specific mutation has to be identified. Well, we have 500 uh, genes that are uh, with specific mutations in them that lead to inborn errors of immunity. Okay, so we, we easily meet this criteria for our patients. The second uh, thing that we get challenged with all the time is that the genetic disorder can't be identified by some other method of testing. For example, most of our patients out here on these calls have CBID phenotype and antibody deficiency. We can certainly identify the phenotype, the defect and the ability of B cells to make antibody responses from biochemical and immunological testing. But we cannot identify the specific genetic disorder that these CBID patients have, which means we can't pick those targeted therapies. The genetic disorder has to be associated with a potentially significant disability or have a natural lethal history. This is uh, unfortunately a important point that PID patients meet. Uh, this is a graph from Charlotte Cunningham Rundles now almost 10 years ago, where she showed that patients who have CVID phenotype and also have some degree of autoimmunity or immune uh, dysregulation have a much lower survival than those patients who have infections only or who compared to the baseline individuals uh, up here. Uh, these patients may have a, a, a shorter lifespan by 10, 20, 30 years. So this certainly, our disorders certainly meet the criteria needed that there are significant disabilities to be faced, um, uh, but without the diagnosis. Uh, the next test, the next criteria, the hurdle that we face all the time to help insurance companies uh, understand why we do this is that the test has to have clinical impact. It has to be actionable. That's the word that they use for us. Um, there has to be a predictive, diagnostic, therapeutic impact as doing the test. Uh, Jordan Orange and his colleagues, uh, Asberg Stray-Peterson, um, published a paper now uh, five, four or five years ago where they actually directly tackled this question. They showed that um, in what they, at that time they were calling the Houston Project, where they're sequencing patients in Texas, they showed that there was an impact 
impact and, and actionability due to making a genetic diagnosis in over a third of the patients. Here are some of the actionability points that I uh, use to describe to our patients and to insurance payers. When we see patients who have a type of CVID driven by STAT1 gain of function, then we can use JAK inhibitors. This is an off-label use of a drug, but it specifically slows down the tempo of their autoimmune disease. For our patients who have NLRP3 gain of function, lots of inflammation in their tissues, and sometimes antibody or other immune deficiencies and infections, we can use IL-1 blockers like anakinra or canakinumab. Um, these may be on-label if it's NLRP3 or off-label if it's other uh, inflammasomopathies. And we have to be able to explain the molecular pathways to our uh, to our uh, to the insurance companies if they accept it. Then this is really excellent actionability to slow down the trajectory of their disease. Interferonopathies we can use JAK inhibitors. CTLA4 and LRBA deficiencies very important causes of CVID phenotype. There's a specific molecule called a batacept that can be used to slow down the autoimmunity and the inflammation. Bone marrow transplants can be suggested for patients who have uh, combined immune deficiencies with certain actionable genetic diagnoses, uh, even gene therapy, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. And then there are lots and lots of even more experimental therapies. I'll give you an example here. This is a little four-year-old boy who we diagnosed with an immune deficiency who had severe disseminated fungal infection. This fungus that lives in California, Arizona, and, and parts of West Texas and, and Southern Nevada called coccidiotomycosis or valley fever. Uh, this kind of fungus, if it spreads out of your lungs, destroys the body. In this case, it was spreading through his skull and through his spinal cord. Uh, he was certainly not going to survive despite aggressive ICU level care and antifungal medicines. We diagnosed him with an immune deficiency, we treated him with an experimental idea of blocking his allergic immune system, the TH2 immune system, blocking the IL-4 and IL-13 cytokines, and we were able to um, cure him. His, his lesions all melted away over the course of a few weeks, and he's now uh, two years uh, later. Uh, this kind of idea that you can pick therapies that are molecularly targeted to the genes, to the defect that the patients have, can't be done if we don't do genetic testing. The insurance companies tell us that there has to be a likely a likelihood of anticipated improvement. Of course, we know that in, in inborn errors of immunity, that if we can block some of these autoimmune and inflammatory consequences that patients have, that they'll have fewer hospitalizations. And the, and the models have shown in one of their papers that the overall cost goes down. And of course, they want to have some testing accompanied by genetic counseling. This turns out to be a major hurdle for some of our colleagues out in the field and the community. They don't have genetic counselors working in their clinics. Uh, we're lucky at UCLA and other major academic medical centers have access to genetic counselors who help us with this hurdle, who write letters for us. Uh, it's extra work that we have to go through to convince these uh, the anthems out there that we know what we're doing, that we have genetic counselors helping us. But it's a barrier for all the doctors out there, all the immunologists out there in the community trying to solve the problems uh, without this extra help. Who needs genetic testing? Um, as I mentioned, the benefits from the beginning are very clear. We think everyone with a primary immune deficiency or inborn artery immunity deserves genetic testing. You have a genetic disease, you deserve a genetic diagnosis, period. But certainly some families, like with, when there's consanguinity, when there are unusually severe phenotypes, or when there's autoimmunity attached onto immune deficiency, we think these situations certainly merit aggressive uh, genetic diagnosis right at the very, from the very first clinic visit. Now, well, it's important to remember that when we do genetic testing, we have millions of variants in our genome. Variants are the parts of our genome 
that differ from the reference person out there. There's one person's genome out there that we compare our genomes and our patient's genomes to that one person's genome. And they vary, of course. We're not all genetically identical twins. We vary from each other. My hair color, my skin color, my uh, height, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's lots of genes in my <laughs> that I vary uh, from, my, uh, from the reference genome. We have 20,000 genes and 5 million variants on average. These variants are mostly benign. They don't change the biology, they don't create disease. They may change my skin color. There's about 154 genes that regulate my skin color and your skin color. Uh, if the variant is this way or that way, if the gene is a T or an A or a C or a G, it's not going to create a disease state. It just may change my skin color compared to yours. All of those variants we call benign. Uh, and then there are variants that are clearly pathogenic, like the cystic fibrosis gene. If you break that gene, and the patient gets cystic fibrosis. We know uh, about 80% of patients with cystic fibrosis have one particular mutation, a deletion, and we know that that deletion is pathogenic. And so if you find that variant in a patient's genome, you can say that variant is pathogenic, okay? And then there's everything in between. And these are called variants of unknown significance. And this is the second grand challenge we face as we move into genetic testing for our patients is to understand the impacts of these variants of unknown significance. We have to take each variant and think about what the impact on each gene, and it's a lot of work. Uh, and not all, not all centers are capable of doing this. This is largely reserved for large academic medical centers at this point. The other major challenge is that exomes only explain about 30 to 50% of our immune deficiencies. Uh, and, the, our, uh, and that's just because we don't know that much about all the genes that cause immune deficiencies yet. In fact, the, the number of genes that we're discovering that lead to immune deficiencies is going up by about 40 genes a year. That's more than three or four a month. Uh, last month, there were a couple amazing papers uh, for new genetic disorders. We are learning so fast. And that's why we tell patients to reanalyze their exomes every six to 12 months, see if what was unknown six months ago is now known. The data are sitting there. Just grab it and see if we can uh, reanalyze it. Getting that paid for, by the way, is extraordinarily difficult. I have submitted to uh, various insurance companies over the last year uh, reanalysis billing codes, and um, almost to the one, they are not paid for. And then think about new genes. There's obviously new genes being discovered continuously. Our, our group just published a new gene for SCID uh, that we discovered, that we helped discover. And there are new genes, as I mentioned, being discovered all the time. But this is a, another one of our grand challenges. How do we move beyond gene panels and exome sequencing into really making more diagnoses? We're not satisfied with 50%. We want to solve all these immune uh, deficiencies. And what, what at UCLA we've started to do is hold genome sequencing and RNA sequencing. This, these are more advanced sequencing capabilities. And we've been doing this for about six years here. And we've learned how to interpret some very difficult cases and solve them by employing these more advanced tools. So the take-home points here is that immune deficiencies are caused by genetic variants in our genome. That's what IEIs are. They are genetic diseases. And everyone with a genetic disease deserves a genetic diagnosis, period. Um, now, we have to find rare variants, and they have to be pathogenic. And most of the problem is that we have these genes uh, that have variants that we don't know what they do. And how to capture that middle ground and understand the impact of these variants is still a challenge for all of us. You can't just look at a patient with an inborn nerve immunity and say, this is the likely gene. Uh, that, those days of one gene, one phenotype are over. We have so many hundreds of genes now with overlapping clinical phenotypes that you really have to think about um, doing genetic testing for everyone. And remember that once you have that genetic test, you can come up with new treatments. I gave you some examples earlier. Uh, these are critical for helping patients not suffer from the uh, consequences of their autoimmunity and inflammation. 
um, tried to capture all that in a few minutes here. I'm happy to take questions afterwards. And again, thank you so much for listening. And, and I hope uh, we can help move these uh, balls forward as, as patients face more and more opportunities to get genetic testing, but also uh, significant hurdles. The IDF Action Alert System is a tool used to mobilize our community on legislative issues related to primary immunodeficiency, or PI. A strong united voice from the PI community can influence public policy issues that impact the health and access to care of those with PI. Action Alerts urge individuals to contact their elected officials and other policymakers at critical times when a patient perspective is needed to remove barriers to care. Sign up for Action Alerts today to send messages directly to your policymakers and join others from the PI community in creating change. The sign-up page can be found at www.primaryimmune.org action alerts. Thank you, Dr. Butte. So go ahead, um, Abe Yunus from the Immune Deficiency Foundation will now present. Thank you, thank you very much, Lynn. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you, Dr. Butte as well for, for all of that information. It's actually um, extremely helpful and very you know, encouraging, although probably quite painful to deal with all the pair-related matters. Um, but it's very uh, you know, encouraging to see that providers um, you know, such as yourself are aware of some of the constraints that we um, are facing, when it, especially when it comes to the testing um, of um, genetics to identify diseases or hereditary conditions. Um, so thank you very much for that. I myself, uh, so again, my, my name is Abraham Yunus and uh, I am new to the uh, foundation. Um, I uh, worked with specialty pharmacies for six and a half years and then with insurance for another six and a half or so years. And uh, the last of my experience was actually at a local uh, San Diego lab where they did the testing of um, genetics to detect melanoma. And um, you know, that, that was quite an experience. Um, and uh, just, uh, you know, just to sort of get the conversation going, I think uh, from, from all the research that I have done, um, genetic profiling and the understanding of, you know, genetic sequencing didn't really take off until the 1980s. And so uh, this company, you know, is very much a startup company um, and we are in 2020. So, as, as, uh, so it's very much a new science. And as many people know, uh, PI conditions are usually inherited. They are inherited, uh, you know, either from one parent or, for, or from both. And um, the genetic code and the understanding of it and being able to identify it gives, gives us an, an understanding of what that PI condition is, um, of what we are, you know, dealing with. Um, and um, a lot of forms of PI go, go unnoticed for many, many years. Which, which we'll talk about a little bit more, which causes a lot of times a strain for insurances on the, uh, uh, you know, from a utilization perspective. Um, so if we're able to identify things for children or for, you know, babies, we are able to very early, early on identify these complicated conditions, which are all extremely similar. And we would be able to also... Um, reduce the utilization of not identifying it till years and years later, maybe after some complications. And so some of the things that we are seeing as far as challenges go 
is because genomics is such a new technology, all of these insurance companies, or many, many of them, as Dr. Butte mentioned, are denying claims and are not wanting to pay for a benefit that a lot of people with PI need. Um, and, and it is, in many, many ways, the most straightforward way to identify what, what a person has, rather than running many, many, you know, many exams. So it's not really adopted by insurances yet. Um, and I think that's because it's very much new. Um, also, one, uh, one thing that we are seeing that a lot, a lot of the insurances uh, have been doing, as they have done on the pharmaceutical side, is they assign genetic testing or laboratory um, coverage to a third party, to a company that is that then acts as a laboratory benefit manager. And so these third companies are pretty much, uh, you know, almost insurance uh, companies on their own as far as their own policies and what tests they cover and what they don't. So there are always new policies coming out. Um, and imagine how many policies you would need when uh, we have, you know, more than 400 different PIs. And so a lot of the things that we are doing on behalf of the foundation and part of why I am actually here, especially on the payer side of things, is uh, to act as a liaison and to um, enhance the communication between providers, patients, payers, specialty pharmacies, uh, laboratory benefit management companies, pharmacy benefit management companies, to really enhance that communication so that they can also um, gain the understanding that, in fact, when identifying genetic conditions early, believe it or not, it, it does usually uh, yield to lower utilization. So uh, it is actually something that has been proven. And, um, you know, um, we, we, we will continue to promote the coverage of it, um, you know, with any policies that uh, we identify, whether it's uh, through a third party or directly through a, a pair, whether it's Anthem or any of the insurances, we will uh, look to collaborate with them, to work with them on this mutual understanding and to um, just develop that, that communication. Because I do believe that there are a lot of silos. Um, you know, Dr. Butte, he, you know, I mentioned he spends 10 hours of, of his week just on this, this kind of education. So we, we uh, need to, um, you know, first have a better understanding of the, existing, of the existing policies that are already out there. But also we need to promote coverage um, for, for this new science which now I feel like we are at a point um, where it really shouldn't be even considered a new science. It should be almost considered uh, like the electric vehicle, you know, so, you know very quick ad adoption of which because we um, are seeing, you know, um, a lot of benefit in just identifying these things early. So, um, you know, our main priority in uh, this as well is after collaborating with the, with the insurances, and reaching an agreement is to relay that information to patients and to providers so that they can understand when do things require, for example, a, a prior authorization, what is covered and what is not, and what can we do together to hopefully expand that coverage. Um, one of the things that we are working, um, you know, as, um, as part of our initiatives is we are actually working with an external consulting group and we are bringing together people from these different 
specialties, if you would, in the industry so that we can have this kind of conversation, so that we can talk about the existing policies. Why are they written that way? Um, what do you know, you know, people in the field, such as Dr. Butte, have you know, as far as um, real live data that we can provide them with that uh, you know, could hopefully um, introduce newer policies that would cover the 400 plus conditions. Uh, that are that are out there for for PI. So currently, uh, we are uh, you know developing an an outreach plan, and that outreach plan is for all types of insurances, really um, PBMs, you know, uh, medical insurances, and also laboratory benefit management companies as well. Um, we will be looking to provide them with the latest information from uh, the challenges that are faced by providers like Dr. Butte and from the community, the PI community that we hear from um, directly through, for example, Ask IDF. And we want to provide them with um, a reference page for the uh, main insurance companies. Uh, there are some larger national insurance providers like United Health Group and uh, Cigna, for example. And so we, we want to create a robust reference on our site where anyone, a patient, a family of, can go to our website and be able to know exactly, okay, if I have United, this is what I need, to, this is what I need to do. This is what is available out there. Um, and we will continue to work on, uh, you know, that type of education, you know, for patients on uh, the insurance coverage that is available and just try to offer as many helpful, on, you know, online tools as we possibly can. Um, so, a lot of the opportunities that, that we are seeing out there, uh, the number of conditions is obviously increasing. So we are putting focus on understanding diagnosis codes, even understanding uh, if a new di diagnosis code needs to be introduced because it's, uh, it's a PI that uh, you know, is, is now has a new name and we need to document it. And it needs a code. We are even looking into that and CDC guidelines surrounding that. Um, we are looking to better define the medical and pharmaceutical coverage per plan. Sometimes things fall under Medicare Part D, which is the pharmaceutical side. Sometimes they fall under Medicare Part D like boy. And so uh, that could be very complicated, believe it or not, coming from the insurance world, I've even seen Medicare um, sort of uh, deal with that confusion on their side, even trying to understand where should this go. So. It's, it's a continuous conversation. Um, I think very important things that um, unfortunately, uh, you know, for someone like me having come to the foundation, my main focus is helping people. Um, and I know that there's always a business side of things, just like there's a business side to hospitals as well. Um, and, uh, you know, things like that. And I know that when it comes to uh, the insurance world, having come from there, there's a lot of focus on, um, hopefully lowering utilization because it usually increases the quality of care and it, and it is a financial benefit uh, when it comes to forecasting for a lot of the pairs. Um, so um, as I mentioned early in my introduction, I had worked with a small lab, lab company for melanoma. So it's the same thing, looking at genetic sequences. And um, you know they, they, all doors were shut in their face, things like that. Up until we showed them through financial forecasting that if you catch things early on, you are actually helping the patient, 
and uh, you know your your bottom line as well as as an insurance provider and as a uh, as a business. So we want to be able to provide more of that forecasting and the understanding that catching things early is very much beneficial. And um, we want to be able to really have direct points of contact. Um, you know, so if um, I have a question and uh, it's a patient who utilizes Caremark Specialty Pharmacy, I want to be able to reach um, the, the IGIV team at Caremark. Uh, we want to be able to do that. We want to be able to be, uh, you know, connectors for that kind of information. And we uh, will uh, shoot to uh, do that on a monthly basis. So, um, you know, I, I, I really want to emphasize the importance of genetic testing and genetic counseling and its introduction as a new benefit. There is a lot of um, both financial and medical benefit and life quality benefit in uh, identifying these things early. And, uh, I want to end on this remark as well is, you know, we, we live in a world now where if um, someone, um, you know, needs a, needs a brain scan or needs a bone scan, you know, they need an X-ray, a CT scan and MRI. It is very normal. We just, we, they're, they're being conducted and they're covered. And uh, that's how we are identifying things. A lot of times that are not visible and genetic sequencing is far from being visible. Um, but it is the same thing. It's, it's, we need to, you know, we need to be able to, to scan for this to be a normalcy and to identify PI conditions, you know, very early, early on, uh, it would enhance, uh, the lives of many people and it would actually benefit the business world as well. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Dr. Butte. This was really enlightening. And Abe, thank you for your presentation. So I just want to thank you for presenting. Uh, we'll stay tuned for all the great work that Abe's going to be doing this year on our payer efforts. So thank you. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. You can watch this session and many more sessions from IDF's Rare of the Rare Summit on our YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash IDF videos. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www. Dot primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.